Hi friends, this is Suzanne. And before we get started with our podcast today, I wanted to share an opportunity with you. It's been about eight months since Ian and Jim and I began the Road Back to You podcast. The show has now grown to over 400,000 listeners worldwide, and all of the feedback we've received from you, our listeners, tells us that this podcast has been encouraging, informative, and life-changing. Up to this point, we've covered the expenses for the broadcast ourselves. As I'm sure you can imagine, that can't continue, so we need your help. If you'll go to our website, theroadbacktoyou.com, and click on the Donate tab, you'll find detailed information on how you can be a part of our broadcast. By making a one-time contribution or committing to a small monthly donation, you can help us continue to provide the quality programming you've grown accustomed to. No gift is too large or small, and all donations are honestly and deeply appreciated. Again, go to theroadbacktoyou.com and click on the Donate tab. You'll find detailed information there on how to partner with us. And now, welcome to Season 2 of The Road Back to You. It's good to be back. This is the opening show of season two for us. How are you? You know, I'm, I am well. I really am. I'm really excited today because one of my dearest friends in the world is on the show with us. But before we jump to our wonderful guest, did you watch the Oscars last night or two nights ago? So um, I want you to listen very carefully because I've told you this twice today, but you seem to be dismissive of the fact that I went to bed last night at 9.30 because I got up this morning at 4 a.m. so that I could be here with you right now. I'm hearing a lot of, just as a, a you know, a four, I'm picking up on a, a lot of energy coming. It's bitterness. At, oh, is that what that is? <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> Straight up. Bitterness. Well, the only reason I bring it is that our producer, Jim Chafee, is directly to my right. And we went to a, an Oscar party last night at our friend Steve Taylor's house. And, uh, you know, so we all compete. You know, we get our little, you know, who has to guess what, right? And there were how many people there, Jim? There's probably 15 or 18 people there, right? Who won? Just tell me who won. Who won what? Who oh, won? you did, obviously, or you wouldn't have brought it up. Annie and I tied for first place. There you go. Oh, I felt so good. I never you know win what anything. That means? Here's what that means. That means that while the rest of us spent 2016 working, you were at the movies. Wow. I'm, you know, Jim... I'm I'm concerned about Suzanne because this will teach you guys to get me up at four. Oh my gosh! Hey, let's get on to the the business here. Scared uh, now? Now I'm you're terrified. Scared. I'm going right to our guest. You get <laughs> um, honestly, this is one of my closest friends in the world. I when I first when Andy and I first moved to Franklin, Tennessee, we were part of a dinner group that our guest Michael Hyatt was. He and his beautiful wife Gail were in. I was. Uh, Soon, a soon-to-be-published author at Thomas Nelson. Uh, Mike was the uh, CEO of Thomas Nelson. How many years were you CEO of Thomas Nelson? Uh, six. Six. Six of their best years, honestly. I can tell you that, personally. Uh, we became fast friends, and uh, it's a, it not only is it an honor to have you on our show, but I can just tell everybody, it's, it, it is a joy to have you in my life as a friend. I Thank mean, it, you so much. Yeah, it, it really is. Let me tell you a few things about Mike that—, that are wonderful. He's one of the most accomplished people that I know, and he carries it very well. He carries his accomplishments very well. Uh, Mike, when people ask me to describe him who know the Enneagram, I tell them that Mike's a self-aware three. He's a healthy three. And so I'm going to get all mushy four on you on this, man. You're going to hate it. I love this. Time. Oh, you're going to love it, right? That's why I have fours in my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I could be part of the furniture. Uh, part of the accoutrement of your psychological room. I'm glad for that. Well, you're so, competing again because he has other fours in his life who make him feel really special. So you better yeah, get on your game. Well, now I'm feeling all envy for who they are. I want to know who they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Okay. So Mike is a, a best-selling author. His... Uh, Latest book is Living Forward, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, I have just finished your other book that you, I think it's the one right before this, is which which was your five days to your, is that five days to your oh, best year? Oh, we did the course. Five days to your best year ever course. Yeah. 
I, I not mean, a book yet. Not a book. Should be. Should it's in the process. Okay, I'm just telling you, it, it was so helpful. And you know, for me as a four, I almost always look at five days to anything as being like, oh, really? There's no such thing. Life's too complicated. And I have to tell you, I did it. It's a goal setting, you know, kind of like get your life, kind of like get yourself, you know, intentional about your life. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, fantastic. I actually have goals now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's that three wing, I think. Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay, you activated my three wing. You got a live stream show that's going to be starting soon. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this. We're starting on March the 6th. And it's going to be at 7 p.m. Central Time on uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Periscope. And every week, I'll interview a different author. Mm. And we're just going to be talking about books. I come out of the world of book publishing, and I love ideas. I love books. And that's what the show is going to be about. That's going to be fantastic. I have so many other things I could say about you. You're uh, that I, I, you know, I'll get all gushy, but you're a multi-dimensional human being. Mike's a multi. Just uh, he's a deacon in the Orthodox. Church, yep, which is one of those beautiful features of your life. Gail, of course, your wife. You got five daughters, yeah. all of whom I know and and love. Dinner at your they house is you. something. Dinner at your house is something. But you also got like five grandkids. How many? You got eight, eight grandkids. Whoa! Yep. Wow. And don't forget, Winston. And Winston, my amazing dog. your amazing dog. That is true. You actually, that is not a dog. I've told you that. that I know. That's the Stepford dog. It's like the most perfect dog I have ever seen. Like this dog, this dog's like three months old. It sits, it rolls, it sits down, it lays down, it does trigonometry. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyhow. He is amazing. Suze? Yeah. This is Mike, a self-aware is, three. Hey, hey. Can you tell us a little bit about threes? Sure. Um, you know, it's so interesting to me that we live in a three country. I'm, I'm not too into what animals are what number and what all of that. But it's clear to me that we live in a three country. And I live in a three city because I'm from Dallas. Mm. And I think we're all kind of swimming in um, a three's read of the world, maybe. But one of the things that's new for me in the last few months, I had a fall and had a concussion. I couldn't read and I couldn't watch TV for four weeks. So I thought a lot, and it turns out I know more than I thought I knew, and I had some new ideas that I'm kind of excited about, and one of them is that I think the best people to explain our culture to us is threes. Really? Because while you're swimming in it, you've also figured out how to find your way Mm. in it, and I think other numbers are kind of um, either frustrated by the way things work or they're separating themselves from the way things work or they're saying, I'm um, I'm kind of above that mm-hmm. in some pseudo-spiritual kind of way, yep. right? So what do you think would be the most helpful thing for other numbers to know about a three in our culture? Wow. Well, there's the usual stuff. You know, I think that... For a lot of threes, particularly unhealthy threes, that there's oftentimes a lack of integration between their public and their private selves. But I don't think it has to be that way. You know, I do think it takes awareness and work to integrate those. Um, I I, I think what I would like to say is threes may not be as superficial Mm -hmm. as you think. Right. Because I think that sometimes people... Uh, tend to pigeonhole threes as well. They're all about success or sort of the external um, things, you know, that give status and all that. But, um, and that may be true for many or maybe even most, but not for all. Yeah, that's interesting because this thing I've been thinking about is that that makes me wonder if you're leaning, if threes are leaning into the superficiality of the culture. And that equals success for you. But it's just because you can read it. It's not necessarily because you represent it. Right. Yeah, that could, that could be. That's an interesting question. Um, I, I do think it's true that threes tend to figure out how to navigate their way to success, however right. you'd want to define it. Right. And threes tend to define it in a very specific way. Right. But yeah, in that sense, I think that's right. Hmm. Okay, I have another question for you I'm dying to ask. Um, how does the liturgical reality of the Orthodox Church affect your threeness? Well, in some ways, I don't think it does. I mean, I think that it's odd that I'm a three in 
mm-hmm. the Orthodox Church. That's right. I would say that, because I thought a lot about this, if I had to summarize kind of the numbers mm-hmm. that would be attracted typically to uh, Orthodoxy, I think one, mm-hmm. definitely. Sure. Because there's a lot of precision, there's a lot of symbolism, everything means something, probably a lot of force mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. because of the meaning thing. Um, we tend in my church to have a lot of nines. And I don't know if that's because of the hierarchical authority structure mm-hmm. of the Orthodox Church, but threes are kind of misplaced because it's it's really about the glory and the majesty of God, mm-hmm. not about the glory and the majesty of individual people. Like right. like it's it, it's definitely not celebrity driven. Right. It's very not pastor driven. If you really want to go to a church and really show off and shine. Like the Orthodox Church is the last place you want to go. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so do you think that explains some of your integration then as a human being? I've never thought about it before, Suzanne, but that's a that's an interesting point. Maybe. Yeah. You know, just as a, a small tangent about nines in the Orthodox tradition, I think part of that might be that nines are very comfortable with paradox. Ah. They're very— That makes total sense. You yeah. know, they—you uh, know— in some ways, I think almost every number on the Enneagram should aspire to be a nine, spiritually speaking, because of their openness, their porousness to experience, their their sense of the belongingness of, of things, mm-hmm. the interconnectedness of things, but also that that whole thing about they're just comfortable with both and. Yep. They're also really comfortable with it's bigger than I am. Mm-hmm. They don't have any problem with something bigger than me is happening, right. and I'm just my part. Yeah. I'm just my and part. See, that's not typically three. No. Right? No. No. And... And I think part of what draws me to the Orthodox Church to this day, because I've been in the church for over 30 years now, I've been a deacon for 30 years, and still the sense of transcendence, yeah. the sense that this is, there's a story that's bigger than I am, and I'm a small part of it, but I have a meaningful role to play, but I'm not the story, and I'm not the central character of the story. That's a, such an indication of health for a three. You know, um, I... One of the things that, you know, if you go to Mike's website, which is michaelhyatt.com, I encourage you to Correct. go there. Um, the, you know, words like productivity, right? Uh, words like efficiency. Um, effectiveness. Effectiveness. Uh, you're being your best self. All these kinds of things. Uh, very. These are three buzzwords. I mean, these are just mm-hmm. buzzy three yeah. kinds of we words. We haven't trademarked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You wear them well. Beware, people. <laughs> and uh, and yet, there's another thing on your website that that and so you could be a very unhealthy three, and those would be your obsessions, right? Accomplishing tasks, right? Right, just knocking them down. Because in in the mind of a three, which we we call the performer, others is called the achiever. Uh, the underlying motivation happening in there is that need to succeed, to or to appear successful, mm-hmm. and to avoid failure, yep. right, uh, at all costs, right. Um. And I think what's interesting is that you call yourself a virtual mentor. That's very other-focused, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so I think that's a, a lovely dimension of your person, because I think when threes get healthy, right, they become more like sixes, right, where there is that focus on growing fruit on other people's trees. You know, they're loyal, they're, they want to, you know, there's just that more of that Less about me, more about you, and to the community that I'm that I'm serving, that I think is important. You know what's funny about that? I I really resisted that moniker. Really? Yeah, because I thought it was kind of self-aggrandizing. You know, who am I to presume that I would be mentoring somebody mm. else? But we kept having people write in. I mean, literally a dozen of these a month, sometimes more. Of people would who would start by saying, "You're my virtual mentor." Mm. And so finally, my team said, I think the audience is trying to tell something. And I think you should just step into that and own it. And so we did. Wow. I think it's true of of most healthy threes that they want to help other people Mm -hmm. achieve what they desire and help other people to be the best they can be. I think that's pretty common with healthy threes. And I think where the disconnect comes is when other people can't set aside um, the things that end up keeping them from achieving, perhaps. So one of the things I've had to set aside now, because my world has changed so much, is trying to make everybody in the room happy. Mm-hmm. You know, my two-ness, I just don't want to leave a room till I'm good with everybody. And I can't do that anymore. 
And I, I think we all bring something to the table that, that everybody else needs, but the rest of the numbers do not how to know how to stay focused on the goal. Mm-hmm. And threes have that above all other things. One of the, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, I think, I think that's true. And sometimes to a fault, because one of the things that I observed early in my career, not knowing anything about the Enneagram is that I just had this kind of almost supernatural stamina. Mm. You know, I could get locked into a goal and not eat, not sleep, just stay focused on it till I achieved it. And sometimes to the detriment of my family or to being present to anything else. And so that was a journey of self-awareness to get to the place where I could, could realize that, that the pursuit of a goal or the achieving of a thing was secondary. And so like my own view of productivity today is very different, I think, than a lot of people teach it. To me, it's not about being efficient so that you can accomplish more. It's being efficient and effective so that you can accomplish what matters most in the least amount of time so you can make room for other people, for spontaneity, for relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my language in teaching this is that one of the things I try to encourage threes to do is stay around till after the confetti falls because threes are so goal-oriented that they usually move on to the next thing. And then they're not with their coworkers or their team or their family when the confetti falls. Do you hang around for the confetti to fall? Well, only because I've had it um, beat into me by my family. Yeah. So naturally, when I accomplish something really difficult, naturally, to celebrate it. Because it's just like, okay, check that off, on to the next thing. And like I get laser locked on another goal immediately. Or when we produce something, I'm always thinking about, okay, yeah, but what's the next iteration of this going to look like? How can we make it even better? But fortunately, I, my daughter who runs my business, Megan, she has said to me over and over again, Dad, you're wearing people out. You've got to slow down. You've got to celebrate. And so she builds celebration into everything. And so I've actually learned to enjoy it. Oh, I'm glad. And yeah. she is a what on the Enneagram? She's a four. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> you were just talking about uh, we've, we, this phrase all three of us have used is spiritual journey, right? Um, one of the great things, of course, about the Enneagram is it's a, it's a, of course, it can be used in a corporate setting without any God language involved. But, but really, I think it, it, it becomes alive when we recognize that it provides a, a growth path for us, you know, unlike other right. psychometrics, right, personality typologies. You've got a spiritual journey. I'd love to know how you went from being a three, right, at 21, which I imagine was something to see, or, or when that, in your most threeness moment, to where you are now. And Because and, I'm sure there were some bumps in the road that led to your self-awareness, as it is yeah. for all of us. Can you describe it? Well, it's interesting. And, and you said spiritual journey. So do you want to hear that side of it? Well, what I'm interested in is the transformational journey, going from okay. no self-awareness about your threeness to how did you become a self-aware three? Failure. Okay. Let's, that's okay. good. Yeah. So what happened was I was the kid in college who had a study carol when an undergraduate couldn't get a study carol because I was able to talk the librarian into giving me one. <laughs> and I kept... Regular office hours in college, and I never pulled all-nighters. I just studied when I was supposed to study, and I was very diligent about it. It was like a job. You know, I didn't put on a suit and a tie, but almost. And then when I got in the corporate world, I went uh, to work in the publishing world. I, I experienced a lot of success, even though I was in marketing where I didn't have any training. And I got, I got really successful. I advanced in my career. And I finally came to Nashville to come to work for Thomas Nelson, which I, I was at Thomas Nelson twice. The, second t- the first time, I worked at Thomas Nelson for two years, got kind of disgusted by the lack of progress I was feeling with the company. It was kind of a difficult time in Thomas Nelson's history. And so I left and started my own publishing company with a business partner. And this is where the plot thickens. So we experienced a lot of initial success. We raised some money. We got very successful. The company lasted for five years, but our growth outstripped our capital. Mm. And I, I, I didn't realize you could grow and go broke at the same time. But now I know that's possible. 
So what happened was that all of our cash got tied up in accounts receivable and inventory and advances to authors and all this stuff. And we just were illiquid Mm. and we couldn't pay the bills. And so this publishing company that was distributing us had loaned us a bunch of money and they essentially shut us down. They said, hey, we want that money back. Wow. And we couldn't pay them back. So we literally shut it down. So it was humiliating. I had people in my church uh, bringing us groceries and my kids were embarrassed. Really hard to watch my kids be embarrassed. And I, I would say that for me as a three in those days, and it still dogs me a bit, but like the worst possible thing is to be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so I was really humiliated. But there was life after that. And I found who my friends were. My business partner at the time who went through this with me were still fast friends to this day. Um, so we went through deep waters together and I think grew out of that experience. And I, I will say, though, that that really did ding my confidence. You know, I was very less sure of things after that, probably in part in a good way, less certain about things in a good way. And I think that opened me up to, <laughs> sounds funny, but for maybe the first time that maybe I didn't know everything. Mm. You know, maybe I didn't have it all figured out. Maybe I needed to kind of go back to the basics and and learn it from the beginning. So I, I think even for me in those years leading up to that, even my spiritual life, I kind of thought I had it figured out. Mm-hmm. Now, by this time, by the way, I was Orthodox. So, you know, this is not like I became Orthodox and figured it all out. Not that at all. But I thought I, I kind of had it all figured out. And this great uncertainty that came out of that just caused me to question everything and to kind of go back to, to the beginning and start over. To become a beginner again, mm. which was helpful. I kind of want to go to the heart of that for a minute and talk about the fact that I'm pretty convinced that threes need to believe that they're loved for who they are and not for what they do. Yes. And I'm not sure you get that without failure. Right. There's so much success in the lives of most threes that until everything doesn't work, you know, it's interesting because you choose words carefully and you're succinct in what you say. And part of that story was, and we're still fast friends after all this and after going through all that together. And I think that um, opens, and my theory is, because I'm not a three, that that kind of experience opens new leadership gifts for threes once they know that what that who they are mm-hmm along with their skills for leadership, are what people are following and not just the skills for leadership. Right. And that they genuinely want a relationship with me. Yeah. It's not just for what I can bring to the table or what I can accomplish for the team, but because I think, because they genuinely enjoy me and I genuinely enjoy them. All of a sudden, um, I, I, I think this didn't happen at one time. It was a process, but, and I would never have said I was the smartest person in the room but I think I kind of subconsciously thought that. Mm-hmm. And after I failed, I realized, no, I've got kind of one dimension of this sort of figured out, but that's it. But now I just, I value my team so much mm. and family so much and friendships like with you, Ian. You know, I think I, I can remember a very specific time in the early 2000s where I thought, wow, I don't have any friends. I'm, I'm, I have confused the people I work with Mm-hmm. For my friends. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I realized when I left Thomas Nelson in 2011 was, and then I don't fault anybody for this, but none of those friendships survived the lack of proximity. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So once I, I left the company, mm-hmm. I just don't have any relationships with hardly anybody there. One person, mutual friend of ours, but but really nobody else. And I realized that that was kind of a faux friendship given the fact that we had a common calling together and we were in proximity with one another. But fortunately, I was able to survive that because long before that, in the early 2000s, I started being very intentional about building friendships mm-hmm. and, and realized that I need to have friends that were outside of work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so critical for threes to do that 
because it's easy to get really confused if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. It looks like friendship. It acts like friendship. And there's nothing wrong with it at all. But you need something beyond that where, Suzanne, like you were talking about, where you can know that you're being loved for who you are and not for what you do. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and there's that great, there's that, you just summarized the... The worldview of the three, that, that, mm-hmm. that the world really only values people for what they do, not for who they are inside. Yeah. That's a, a major theme for, for threes, for sure. I, just one other thing I would add, too, is I think that it was incredibly providential or lucky that I, that I have five daughters. Mm. Because, um, I, you know, I don't want to be sexist in this, or I, I don't even... I don't know if this is or it isn't, but I will say this, that in general, my experience is that the women in my life are not really that impressed by achievement. Yep. What they are impressed with is relationship. Like I, I know I, I can remember one distinct time when I was having a discussion with my wife. We've been married 38 years. Oh, I say discussion. That, that's a three-way of saying we're having a fight. <laughs> and, and, it was in, and it was intense. And she, and she just said to me through tears, she said, I don't need you to be a CEO right now. Right. I need you to be my partner. And I mean, that was just like a kick by a mule. And I can think of the times when I was the most helpful to my daughters who went through all kinds of things. And it was when I just shut up and was fully present and listened. Mm. And I can remember one time with my daughter, Madeline, after she'd gone through this horrible breakup with a boyfriend. And she came in and she was crying and I was holding her hand and she just cried and just was pouring out her soul to me. And after about 45 minutes of this, we got up and she embraced me and she said, dad, that was so incredibly helpful. I mean, I literally had not said a word. Yeah. And I was just there with her. Mm. The fascinating thing I think is that if we don't jump in with what we do best and threes are perhaps best at problem solving. Mm. Good grief. That's how you see. That's right. So it feels so loving to problem solve for people. Right. And it feels like such good leadership to problem solve for people. It's so helpful. Yes. And when you're good at it, why wouldn't you do that? And then they thank you, and it feels like a relationship. It feels like we are really in this together. Uh, But it is a community that's built around a problem. Yeah or a time in relationships that's built around a problem. And I am really trying to figure out how to encourage threes and sevens and eights as aggressive numbers to share with us the best opportunities they have for relationship building. So, for example, I would never think that the best chance I have to build a relationship with an eight is in a share group around a table, right? <laughs> not <laughs> not going to happen there. But you could build a relationship with an eight if side by side you were building a habitat house, mm-hmm. for example. So how would somebody engage you to build a relationship with you that's not business at its core? Well, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I can't think about my number, how I would answer it as a number, but I can just tell you, for me, like I think for a lot of people, and this is where we, I think we have a common humanity, it's just spending time with me. Mm-hmm. You know, let me, let me know that you value, like Ian's great at this. Like he'll just text me and check in on me. Yeah. You know, and so the fact that he takes the initiative mm-hmm. on that is really um, soul satisfying yeah. to me. Because I think, you know, he's not doing that because he's looking for something right. or, you know, he's just doing that because he cares about me. And I love that. That's interesting. Sevens and eights say the same thing, that they they need people to just say, hey, how are you? Yeah. And yet you don't give us that clue. Right. Because we, we want you to think it's all handled right. and we're on top of it. Right. And, and that is a, you know, you know, the very, oftentimes the, our personalities, these adaptive strategies, you know, at the end of the day, we're we, we're looking for a particular unmet need to get met, and, and and if you were going to put a big overarching need on it, we know we're all looking for love, right? <laughs> you know, safety, love, uh, you know, all these things that are just core to the human person. But all those strategies end up thwarting our getting the love we want, mm-hmm. really. And this is an example because threes often look like they have it so together, mm-hmm. even when they're not confident, even when they're self-doubting, they still look cheerful confident, we're, we've got this thing going. I mean, I've got it covered. And so it, in a way, what it does is it communicates to everybody else, well, why would I text 
a guy like Mike or someone else because he actually doesn't need to hear from me. I'm probably pestering him. Do you know what I mean? Because he's busy. And so sometimes, twos, fours, sevens, we all do this in our own ways, right? We, We actually hinder the thing we want most. It just occurs to yeah. me that we are the we are the heart triad mm-hmm. sitting here at the table, and true. we all deal with feelings so differently because I feel everybody else's feelings is a two, and the hardest question anybody asks me is, "What do you feel or what do you need?" You take in information with feelings, but then you set feelings aside real quickly mm-hmm. because you want to get stuff handled, and the plan is is a three out. Wow, I, I need to deal with that later, but you're busy, so you don't get there. And you don't want to have any feeling that falls anywhere near the average range. So as a four, you want happy to be happier and sad to be sadder. And that's why God made pharmaceuticals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone and just say that I, I just think it's astonishing that we put so much talk around the numbers next to ours and... Um, wings and all that. The three of us are all in the heart triad, and we are very different from one another. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, really very, very different. And you have no choice except to have us, you, Mike, have no choice except to have Ian and me as wings. So there is no out of this heart space for you, which is a fascinating thing about the I'm Enneagram, stuck. that somebody <laughs> who would so want to get away from feelings— is trapped between two people who are all about them. Yeah, and I just think uh, of my daughters as well. I've got a couple of fours, a couple of eights. And, you know, in that context, I was constantly being confronted with feelings. Mm -hmm. And to this day, when I journal, one of my kind of questions to prompt me is how am I feeling right now? Because if I don't check in on myself, I'm not even aware of it. But having said that, and I don't know, you guys can tell me on this, I literally can, I can cry at the drop of a hat. Like any television show, like we were watching the most recent issue of This Is Us. Like I'm in a puddle. Did you guys see that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. It's one where, well, I won't say it because I don't want to give it away. But I was working while y'all read the movies and watching. <laughs> no, you were probably on a plane getting here. That's a two, right? <laughs> yes. That was the mark. She just went to a lower side of two. She was getting all resentful and well, y'all were having a, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think for threes at least, we there, there's got to be a mechanism by which we check our feelings. Either it's other people that check in on us or we have some kind of spiritual discipline or something because it's easy just to stuff it in the pursuit of a goal and an accomplishment. Mm. You know, uh, because we've had a lot of artists on the show. We've had psychologists on the show. We've had, you know, all manner of people. But we've not had a business, you know, a person who's really um, uh, a master, if you will, in the world of, of business like, like you, Mike. So I do have a question. I had the privilege of being with your team. Uh, teaching the Enneagram to your team at the amazing Blackberry Farm. That was, Actually, that was your that was a mastermind awesome. class. Oh my gosh, it's the best thing I ever did in my whole life. This is why I'm so glad to have threes in my life. Because if it had been a four, we'd have been in a you know in a dark bar smoking gawa. And anyway, so the <laughs> see, I don't even cigarettes. know what you smoke. Yeah, I don't even know what he said. I don't even you know he just makes up things. I think I didn't make up no any any excuse to use a French word. My my question was for you is about uh, the enneagram and leadership and in business because yes. these are really your these are your wheelhouses. You know, how has the enneagram helped you in your vocation as a you know as a business person, but as a leader and a mentor of of people who do look to you for advice on how to live these efficient, effective, freed up lives. That's a great question. Um, I, I, stu- I started using various tests because I, I realized that in my hiring as a young businessman, I basically was looking for me. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to hire a lot of people like me. The problem is that doesn't lead to a very healthy culture and it doesn't lead to a very capable team. Now, this side of the Enneagram, we know because if, if I only recruited threes, First of all, we'd be exhausted, and we wouldn't have the richness that the other eight numbers 
bring to the table. So I, I first started using uh, the disc test, and then I started using uh, strength finders. And strength finders, Marcus Buckingham, who, who, was an auth- who was an author that I published to Thomas Nelson, really helped me see the value of strategically building a team with different strengths. And it's almost like if you were a conductor and you were assembling an orchestra, you wouldn't want only violin players or only celloists. You would want all the different instruments so you could create the richest, most textured music possible. And then we started using Colby. We still use Colby and Strength Finders. But the thing about the Enneagram, and so we test everybody on Enneagram now too. The thing that I love about that is because it does give a growth path, a development path. And so that people have a way of becoming better versions of themselves. And I happen to believe that the way God's made us, that when we're functioning according to who we really are, when we have the most alignment with our own natural identity, then that's when we're going to be the most productive and make make the greatest contribution. So I want to know what people's numbers are, you know, because I want to not resent that or try to change them. I want to use that. You know, I want to I want to see that as something valuable, a gift that they're bringing to the party that makes the whole team richer through the exercise of their God-given abilities and personality. Mm. That's fascinating to me. My uh, husband is on the staff of a very large United Methodist Church, and uh, he's head of congregational care, and that suits mm. him really well. But he's a nine. Um, there was some discussion uh, in this staff of 110 about the fact that the communication department wasn't quite able to keep up with what everybody wanted. And I taught them this last week, and I taught stances. So I taught, in terms of thinking, feeling, and doing, what's repressed in each of the numbers instead of what's dominant. And um, it, the guy is sitting right in front of me, and uh, he's an eight on the Enneagram. So he's aggressive and doing, 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 doing all the time. And I finished teaching, and uh, the first two stances, which are the withdrawing stance, which is fours, fives, and nines, and the aggressive stance, which is threes, sevens, and eights. So here's this eight who's head of this department to get all communication out for a 17,000-member church, and everybody on his team is a withdrawing number. So they're all doing repressed. Wow. And he went through every feeling that you can imagine an eight ever having right in front of me. And he just came up to me afterwards and said, I, I would have never figured this out. Wow. Never. And he said, now I think I know what our needs might be. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just don't know of anything else that offers that. All those I other agree. tools that you talked about are great, but they don't offer, and here's what you do. Yeah. No, that's true. And I think it's also incredibly affirming that when somebody thinks that this thing that's their number is kind of how they're broken, Mm -hmm. or they kind of are apologetic about Mm -hmm. it, but to have that affirmed and seen as a gift and invited to express it even more, then all of a sudden, um, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but it it gives them wings. Sure. Sure, because you're feeling repressed with sevens and eights. Right. But but when you bring up feelings, they're the purest part of you. Yes. And there's nothing there's nothing like pure feelings. Mm-hmm. I have to work to have pure feelings that are mine, and yours just come when you're allowed to when you allow that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty great. That's good. Yeah, I um, I have a question for again going back to business a little mm-hmm. bit and leadership. Do you think? Because I've heard this question from people. Do you think there are particular numbers on the Enneagram who are more naturally gifted when it comes to, for example, one area of expertise for you is entrepreneurialism or uh, to be a CEO of a company, to be, you know, whatever. Do you think there are particular numbers that are, are stronger in the leadership in, or, or that you've seen out there repeatedly that aren't or are? Well, you know, part of I'm going to be a little hesitant to say this because I wouldn't want to box somebody in yep. who's a particular number. But for example, I know nines and you know nines that struggle with making decisions. And they might sometimes procrastinate because they want to keep all their options open and wait till they can figure it out. And so that sometimes is not helpful. 
in leading. Um, I've known some sevens, and again, I'm just giving examples sure. and not trying to generalize, but I've known some sevens who, while they were incredibly positive and adventuresome and charismatic, had difficulty following through, and so that cost them credibility with the team. Mm. But I think it seems to me that all the numbers, if they were healthy, and if you had a right view of leadership, which means you don't have to do it all yourself, and you can intelligently and strategically surround yourself with people that complement your number, I think any number could could succeed can succeed in leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have dreams of uh, teams for everybody with all nine numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, twos are necessary to keep teams together because they're the people who know the stories that make up people's lives and they know what's going on and 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 all of that. But I, I do have to say that I think there are certain leadership positions that are best served by aggressive numbers on the Enneagram because they don't get lost in other people's feelings. Yeah. And sometimes when you're worried about everybody being on board and how everybody feels, you can't get anything done. Right. I just had this conversation with... A leader who had come to me for advice, and he was saying, I just, I'm, I, I keep trying to build consensus, and I, I can't quite get it, and I can't keep moving forward. And I said, has it ever occurred to you that there's a difference between agreement and alignment? Mm, that's good. And I, I said, alignment does not require agreement. It's helpful if you can get it, but alignment is something you do with your will. You know, you say, look, I disagree with that direction. Now, let's just assume it's a, d- a direction that doesn't have unethical parts of it, but let's just assume it's a matter of strategy and business. And alignment is saying, look, I appreciate the fact that you heard me out. I don't agree with this direction, but I can totally align with it because I'm committed to you and I'm connected to you. Mm -hmm. And so then you can walk out of a a board meeting or a committee meeting and everybody be aligned, although not everybody's in agreement. Right. Mm. And and I, I, you know, good leadership helps people align. Right. And doesn't insist that people agree. That's right. Seems to me that weak leadership means you you got to see my vision. You got to agree right. with me, and that's just not true. It's not true, and they and and those people insist on agreement when alignment would be sufficient. But a lot of re- times, there's not even alignment, is because the leader's not listening, and people don't feel heard. My experience is that if people feel heard, and they can express. Um, Whatever they're seeing that's negative, that's keeping them from agreeing, if they feel like they're generally heard and that the leader understands, they'll quickly align when asked to do so. If you could uh, tell your going to the office in your library, Carol, 20-year-old self, a life lesson that you now know would have been really helpful to you, what would it be? Stop acting like you've got it all together. Be vulnerable. Be authentic. Um articulate your challenges in real time. But you got to have a process to even get to that. Because even to this day, like one of the things my team will say to me, they said, you're really good about talking about your past struggles and your past failures, but it's really hard to get you to talk about that, what's going on right now. And, and, it's, and it's not because, at least at a conscious level, I'm trying to cover that up, like I'm really failing over here, but I'm not. But I don't perceive that. Well, is it because it's not a failure yet? I think that's right. Yeah, it hadn't failed yet. I'm I'm not finished. Yeah, I'm not finished. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I I would think of there's no failure till the that's, game's over. Yeah. And even then, we're gonna reframe it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's one of the things I've had to learn with my daughters too, is it's like, Dad, it's not time for the reframe yet. Oh. You know, because like they could be going through the most horrific thing. And my wife's kind of like this too, where we'll just say, Yeah, but what does this make possible? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I'll tell you what you can do with that. What does this make possible? Because they're not ready for that. They need to grieve. They need to process it. They need to kind of go through it. But but yeah, so it's hard to get to failure, unless it's something that's catastrophic, like I had with my bankruptcy. Right. Yeah, but that saved you. That that's cat, right. That, that's the best thing that ever happened. Yeah, I just uh, had a young three come up to me recently at a workshop and say, so I, I get it that I'm going to have to experience failure before I'm really okay. Can I set that up? <laughs> Yeah. I said, no, you exactly. can't. Exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah. Full failure. Yeah. Well, and you know that, you know, you just articulated something that's really important uh, about threes, which is, you know, they're so afraid of failure. 
Now, which makes them different than sevens. We use the word refrain a lot with sevens, right? Because they'll just turn a positive, a negative into a positive to avoid the feelings that right. you and I would feel in that situation because they just want to get out of them. So right. I'm going to make it a positive. A three does something that looks the same, but for different reasons. It's about perception. It's about perception. I'm going to turn this failure into something that's, oh, this is a, le- I'm using air quotes, people, a, a learning opportunity. Right. Or this was a that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but this the, would be a great the, story in my book. Yes, exactly. Or how can I monetize this failure? You know, like, like how do I how do I turn it into a product and sell it? You know, uh, I think um, when you're self aware, which is so important. I mean, that's just the whole so thing. important. You know, I mean, just to know, okay, I'm I'm doing my thing right now. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my three dance right now, and I gotta make a choice. Do I want to stay in it because it doesn't end well? Uh, it's comfortable, but it's not going to end well. Or do I want to move toward you know being a more integrated, aware person, making different choices than I than I necessarily would otherwise? Um, so we got to wrap up pretty soon. Oh wait, wait, wait! Can oh. I? I just want to ask a self-serving question. Oh, go on it. Go on it. I love books so much, and I love to read so much. Uh, would you be willing to give me three or four of your just favorite books from all time? Oh. And also tell us which one of your children is your favorite. <laughs> right here to our all of it. Well, I'm, I'm assuming you mean apart from your book. Well, of course. That's that goes with that. Yeah, that's, that's it. just like yeah. that's. Yeah. Well, I think um, a lot of spiritual books have had an impact on me. All right. Okay, so uh, Saint Athanasius on the Incarnation. Okay. Was huge. Um, it's probably not huge for Methodists. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're bap- definitely not for Baptists. No, I, I, I get that in Orthodox context. Yeah. Well, I, I will say, I will say this: you, sh- you should familiarize yourself with him because he basically defended the incarnation against the entire world. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a very successful so none, thing. None of us would be here if it weren't for him. Got it. Okay. So I'm on it. Um, another book that had a big impact. I mean, this is also an Orthodox uh, writer, but is uh, Alexander Schmemann's "For the Life of the World." Yeah, absolutely had a big. Big impact. That's why I me. became a priest. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And then, that's amazing. I've never heard that story. Mm-hmm. And then to go kind of from pillar to post, I would say, um, this is just kind of a favorite book. Yeah. Stephen King's The Stand. Okay. <laughs> so from Athanasius to Stephen King. There you have it. Great writer. Great writer. So, you know, one of my favorite books is Lying Awake by Mark Salzman. I've not read it. I, I want you to. Okay. Uh, I want everybody to because it's a it's a fine line between mysticism and ordinary life mm. and how it affects you and would you change it if you could. Mm. It's a little book. You can read it in a Sunday afternoon. But I like that book so much because it didn't give me any answers. Mm. And I tend to read books as a two, first for other people. <laughs> <laughs> See, I can use things to help them. So I could outsource some of my reading to <laughs> Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> well, in what I'm reading, I already have outsourced for all Enneagram numbers and all my friends. In the column, <laughs> you don't ever find my name, but you find everybody else's, right? But I, I just, I, I want us, the three of us, because we're all love books, to just try to say something to get people to read. You know, so here's my line, and then you guys can take it from there. My line is this. Everybody can read 10 pages a day. Yep. And that's 300 pages a month, and that's usually two books. And it will change your life, and it will change the conversations that you have with other people. And I don't care what you read. Just read. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a three answer to okay. this. And the three answer is if you're looking for efficiency— and a shortcut to experience, because life is short and you can't experience everything, you can read other people's experiences and go to places that you couldn't go otherwise, have experiences that you couldn't have otherwise, travel in time, and you can experience a much richer, fuller world by reading. That's so good. Mike, you've got a, a, a new thing you're launching called uh, Free to Focus. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us about it? I want to hear about it. Yeah, this is a productivity course that I created when my daughter came to me and she said, dad, your approach to productivity is so different. And I think you'll find this interesting as a three too, because all the productivity courses out there, productivity books have to doing, have to do with doing more. And despite all the smartphones and all the devices and all the books on productivity, we're busier than ever. 
we've got less time for the stuff that matters most. And she said, that, my daughter was saying to me, she said, that's, that's not your approach. And I said, no. I said, to me, productivity should lead to freedom. Freedom to really focus on the deep work, to think deeply about whatever it is you want to contemplate. Uh, the freedom to be spontaneous. I think that for most threes, their life is so structured and so ordered and so efficient that if the grandkids show up at two o'clock in the afternoon, it's like, uh, you were not my schedule, mm-hmm. right? So, no, I want to be the freedom to be spontaneous so that I can set all that down when the grandkids show up and be with them. And then, which leads me to the last freedom, which is the freedom to be present. Mm. Because I think that one of the things that's happened in our smartphone-addicted world is that we now have the ability, by virtue of these devices, I'm holding my phone in my hand, to be somewhere we're not. You know, I can be present with family members or friends and still be disengaged and be present with somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I'm not even present with them. And so the freedom to be fully present. So productivity has to lead to that. To me, if, if freedom doesn't lead to productivity then it's, it's not really productivity. And so one of the things I talk about in the course, I have this thing called a freedom compass. And it's basically, how can I get to the place in my life where I'm only pursuing the things that I'm passionate about and the things that I'm really proficient at? So do I love it and am I good at it? And everything else can be eliminated, automated, or delegated. That leads to freedom. When you don't have some kind of framework or scheme like that, then you're overwhelmed with all that you have to do, not realizing that there are other people in the world that can handle those tasks better than you do. I had this conversation with Gail years ago who I I suggested we hire somebody to help her with cleaning the house. And she just had this framework coming from a very traditional home that that was her job. And I said, well, first of all, let's, let's just be honest here. I mean, you don't enjoy this, right? And by your own admission, you're not that good at it. And worse than that, you're taking this work away from somebody that might love it and might actually be good at it. And so that's become an operating model for her. And so, and for me too, is that if I don't like doing this, then this is an opportunity for me to find somebody else that can do it or automate it, or maybe it doesn't need to be done at all. But why is it that we create these games every morning where we have 20 things on our to-do list and we get to the end of the day having accomplished 12 and still feel like a failure? I have three and only three things on my list every day. But there are things that are in what I call my desire zone, the things that I love and I'm good at. And if they're, and by the way, it didn't happen overnight. But the course really teaches you how to get there. Mm. Since we got to go to that course, don't we? Yeah. I love this. This is really good. I love podcast stuff and I'm good at it too. Yeah, you are good at it. You are good at it. Both of you are. Yeah. You know, um, uh, first of all, I've been looking forward to this interview for the longest time because, uh, you know, my, the gift that you've brought to my life, and it reminds me, you know, we, we all need each other for different things. So true. You know, we do. We all need each other. The gifts that we draw from each other. And one of the gifts that, that you've brought to my, you know, I'm a creative, mercurial at times, you know, when I'm in a bad space, overly self-interested and, you know, angsty and stuff. And you've done a couple of things in my life that have really, you have a way, and I think this is true of threes, of getting to the heart of the matter, clarifying it, and saying, do something about it. And on a couple of occasions, and, and, and I'm fortunate, like Jim, I think I've said too, is, is another person in my life who just tells me the truth. And, you know, a couple of times you, you just have had this wonderful way of saying, Ian, you are doing this when you should be doing that. Go do it. You know what I mean? Like in your own way, because you know, you're my friend. I can get I can say that to you. Go do it, you know? And it's it's been remarkably clarifying and and uh uh something I'm well, thank you. really, really grateful for. Michael Hyatt, MichaelHyatt.com, freetofocus.com. People Correct. need to go and, and visit freetofocus.com. Um Living Forward, I think was the book I was actually talking about. What Yes, that's my most recent book with Daniel Harkavy, yeah. my co-author. That's the one I, the, I would, these are all great books. Best year, best, five days to your best year ever, living forward. You got this live stream show again, starting when? Starting March the 6th at 7 p.m. Central Time. And they, they access by? Just go to my page at uh, Facebook would be the easiest way. Okay. Facebook.com slash Michael Hyatt. All right. Well, for those of you for whom Michael Hyatt is uh, your 
uh, virtual mentor, I want you to feel envy, which I feel as a four all the time. Okay? I want you to join my ranks because actually he's a personal mentor, not a virtual one for me. And I want to put that right. I'm going to put that right in your grill, people. There it is. <laughs> Susan, do you want to close up? Well, I, I do want to just lay one thing on the table for you to pick up or not. Um, I think young threes have an awful hard time figuring out how to um, answer the call in their life in the business world and how to do that uh, with people who are not on a spiritual journey or who are not seeking integrity. And so I'm just going to put out there that on your show and when you have the opportunity, I think the world needs threes who can talk about how you blend success with feeling things, things that come from feelings and things that come from failure. Because I can talk all day, but young threes are afraid to fail. And when I say that's the door that opens your spiritual journey, they say, you're sweet 66, lovely little old lady, and I'm not doing that. (laughs) But they might take that from you. And I'm convinced that till they find out that they're valuable after the failure— the spiritual journey is going to be held at bay. Mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. And I think life has a way of orchestrating itself mm-hmm. so that uh, threes will usually encounter that. I think that too, almost. I almost think that. But let me tell you where I'm getting hung up on that. Okay. I think uh, my generation, so I'm 66 and Joe's 69, and I think we've done a bad job in parenting, many of us, in terms of letting our children fail. Mm. And I think we hesitate even more to let promising children fail. It's like we turn what could be failure and life-changing for them into a glitch that we can handle with a phone call or two. And I think that's terrible parenting, and I know it's bad for threes. Yeah. I think it's also true as business leaders that if you feel like you've got to rescue people Mm that are about to fail, sometimes the best thing that can happen is for them to go through a failure. Now, if it's going to be catastrophic on the company, you might want to intervene. Sure. But most failures, not like that. Yeah. Well, if we're going to keep going for a second, who is the leader that you looked like you think, dang, that's a that, like that's an icon of a leader. Oh, icon. I use that for the Orthodox guy. Uh, but you, you, you know, who <laughs> do you, you is like sort of emblematic of great leadership? You know, I get asked that question a lot, and to be honest, I have a hard time pointing to anyone because uh, there are certain leaders that are certainly well-known and popular and have written great books and all that, but there's there are problems there. And I, and I don't—I'm I, I, embarrassed to even have to say that because you'd think I would be able to point to somebody. But I can't think of some people that were my mentors, okay. that nobody's names that they would know. Uh, like one of them, uh, an executive coach that I had, Eileen, amazing, amazing. She would ask me the most pointed questions. And this was when I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson. She would come in one day a month and we'd spend the whole day together. And it was about three quarters psychotherapy and about a quarter business. But her whole premise was that my thinking was leading to the results in the company. So we had to uncover the thinking that was leading to that. And it was some of the deepest, most difficult work I, I ever did. Hmm. Um, another one was my business partner that I, that I mentioned that I failed with and taught me some of the most important lessons on integrity early on in my business career, Robert Walgamuth. So, yeah. I like the fact that you pulled people out of your, your personal experience and your personal life instead of, you know, having said, you know, Jack Neutron Welch or Winston yeah. Churchill or somebody like that. I I, I think that's a, a wonderful answer. Susie, have you a good time on this show? Did you have a good time? Yeah, you got some good friends. I do have. You know what? I was actually while you you were you guys were talking and I had a second to think. I was thinking to myself, you know, my life has been populated with amazing people, and I should be more grateful. I should get up every day and, and name five people in my life that really have helped me to be a better person. I mean, I know in my heart. When I leave them, that I've I've left meaningfully better as a human being. I feel that way about both of you guys. I feel about that about all of you people listening to our podcast today. And I hope you go off and have a productive, efficient, but life freed up to do the important things. 
Suze, love you. Right back at you. It's so nice to have an hour with you, Mike. Thank you both. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, produced by Jim Chafee, and our engineer is Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Laurie Chaffer. Please visit our website, theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and a list of our public appearances around the country. And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Hey, Suze, we got some dates coming up. We do. We're going to be here in your hometown in Nashville, March 31st and April 1st at Otter Creek Church. And we're going to be in my home state in May 12th and 13th at Westover Church. And we got some single dates coming up, too. I'm going to be at Trinity Grace Church in Tribeca, New York on April 21st to 22nd. And you're going to be at that gigantic and wonderful First United Methodist Church of Dallas that weekend as well. True. And all the information about all of those events is on our website, theroadbacktoyou.com. Hope we see you there. 